Our gracious God and our Father, we uh, think of our children who just left the room, and uh, we pray for your rich blessings upon them and those that will teach them and lead them. It is uh, so encouraging to see the young people uh, reunited and so enthusiastic to, to see one another again, and some of us are reminded when we were young that the only Christians we ever met were those in church and at camp, and how important those relationships were to us that we would remain faithful and continue to walk with you, and so we think of them as well. And all this reminds us what our Savior taught us, that one cannot enter the kingdom of God unless he receives it like a child. Not in the simplistic of faith of one who is ignorant, but in the simple heart of one who is undistracted and undivided, that has a singular focus upon the one who provides and protects. We think of those days when our children were young and afraid and they ran to us and wrapped their arms around our legs, seeking refuge in our presence and our protection and love and that security that was found there. And so also you have called us as children in a similar way to have our faith focused upon you and to love you in a way that is without distraction, in a way that is simple. And so we pray, Father, that you would have your way with us this morning by your spirit, that we would, in a similar way, be focused upon you, that we would learn of you and all this to your glory and to the good of those that we serve and love. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning in our prayer time, somebody quoted the very end of Psalm 139, where the, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And that is a, is a good way for us to get going this morning. It is a psalm, petition, uh, that sort of clues us in to part of the agenda of Scripture to understand the way in which our, our heart works. And it is uh, such that it's a little bit contrary uh, to what we have learned in, in the West because of our dependence upon Greek philosophy, which wants to put an, an antagonism between our heart and thinking, that there is this, this great um, opposition, even a divide between uh, the head and the heart. It's a way that you and I have grown up talking, and uh, we do not want to uh, be the grammar Gestapo this morning and uh, look down our noses upon anybody who says that phrase or to judge them harshly. We all know what they're trying to say. But in the end of the day, we want to understand that that's, that is not a helpful distinction and that our thinking should not be dependent upon Greek philosophy as much as it should be dependent upon Scripture. And Scripture unfolds to us a, a different idea of what the heart is and how it functions, and that, in fact, in Scripture, the heart is the seed of understanding, and that in terms of your thinking and your cognitive abilities, your knowledge and your ability to think, Scripture is most comfortable seeding that in the heart. And that is not the way that, that we often think. So I need to sort of persuade you of that this morning a little bit by going to Scripture and setting up our, our next session when we talk about how that impacts our understanding of repentance. And then this evening, how that impacts understanding of faith. So we want to think of the mind of the heart this morning and, and how uh, Scripture says our knowing takes place uh, because of the heart. Now, if the heart principally does one thing, 
it thinks. And so let me quote um, an Old Testament scholar. His name is Hans Walter Wolf, but uh, if D. Dodi is here this morning and Rebecca uh, Emmerich, they know it's actually Hans Walter Wolf. That's how you're supposed to, to say it. But they don't say that because people think I'm wrong. But anyway, but he says this. He says, and by far the greatest number of cases, it is the intellectual, rational functions that are ascribed to the heart in the Old Testament. That most often, when you read the word heart in the Old Testament in particular, when you see the word lev or levav, if you read Hebrew, and I congratulate you, by the way, um, it probably has this in view, that this is where the emphasis is. It's, it's in the thinking. And so uh, what we're simply trying to say is that the heart is where we think. It's where we consider uh, our discernment, our ability to, to comprehend, to understand uh, to reflect, if you're designing something, if you're pondering something in your heart, if, you're, if you have purpose in your thoughts, if you are meditating, if you have questions, if you have doubts, if you have ideas or insights, I could go on and on and on. It's taking place in the heart. Like the passage I just read from Psalm 139. Or think of Genesis 6-5, where the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. There's a parallel there between your heart and your understanding. Uh, Matthew 9, 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil things in your hearts? Uh, Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. And then this prayer of Paul's in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, he says, May God give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. So there you can see the whole context about wisdom, appreciating revelation and knowledge. And so what does he pray? He prays that your heart would be enlightened. And then last of all, Hebrews 4, 12 the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so there are many passages that, that we could read, uh, about 260 um, by my count, uh, that have this sort of emphasis where you see the word heart in the Old Testament. Uh, when you open up the book of Proverbs, many of our English translations says this person lacks sense. So this person does this lacks sense. Um, Proverbs 6.32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. Every single time you see that phrase, lacks sense, I'm telling you, it says lacks heart. Dollars to donuts, a friend of mine would say, it says lacks heart, literally. But you understand where translators are coming from. If you say lacks heart... It might communicate the wrong thing, but they're saying they're not thinking right, the person who does this. But it's the phrase, lacks heart. And in fact, what's interesting is if, we, if we're right about this, what we're saying about um, if, if heart is about knowledge and about wisdom, where would we expect to find the occurrence of the heart most often in the scripture? So if I was to do a spike graph, it's on occurrences, and it goes like this. You've seen these graphs of how many times you see this. It goes along, and for Samuel, it jumps up a little bit, but when you get to the book of Proverbs, it goes like this. And Ecclesiastes, it goes like this. In Ecclesiastes, the word heart appears once out of every nine verses. And so 
in the wisdom literature, the word heart appears over 200 times. That's 20% of all the times in Scripture. So this is exactly what we would expect if it's, if it's in the heart where wisdom and knowledge are found. This is where we would expect to, to find uh, these occurrences. Uh, and think of what the, the, the father is doing in those early chapters of Proverbs. He's literally appealing to the son for his life. He's, he's saying, the things I'm telling you, you need to listen carefully to me. You need to understand this is a, an issue of life and death. And so that's why he says things like this. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. And he keeps asking his, his son for his heart because it's his life and his understanding in this context of, of wisdom. And the man of wisdom in um, uh, wisdom literature is a man of heart. Uh, Job is described that way as a man of heart. Solomon, uh, we're told in 1 Kings 3, literally had an understanding heart. Or in 1 Kings 3, he had a, a listening heart. But oftentimes our English translations say that he was a wise mind or he had deep understanding, something like that. But the heart was the issue for Solomon. Because in the end, what happened? It says his many wives turned his heart away. So it's the heart that meditates, remembers, and, and reflects uh, we would say records. So we record things all the time so that we will not forget them. But think of that word record. So you have a prefix, R-E, re, but what's the, what's the very core of that word? Well, okay, that was, I, I didn't intend that pun. All right. The, the, the root of it, the stem of it, what is it? It's C-O-R. It's the Latin for, for heart. It means to reheart something. It means to rehearse it in your heart, to meditate upon it, think upon it, Record it, as it were, on your heart so that you can think upon it later. You can't meditate upon that which you have not yet considered and, and perhaps memorized. We think of the incredible news that Mary received from the angel that God said. In Luke 2, it says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. That's where she was thinking about it. Oh, the secret thoughts that we have. Oftentimes, the way Scripture puts this is, like in Genesis 17, 17, that Abraham fell on his face and said to himself, like whispering to himself internally, but literally, it says, uh, said to his, his heart. And so, uh, this is uh, the, the function of, of the heart. It's to, it's to remember. And so, uh, no surprise to us, as we said last night, this is where faith is conceived, as Romans 10, uh, 9 through 11 tells us. This is where the word of God lands and, and takes root, Romans 10, 8. And this is where faith grows or where it does not. We think of what our Savior said when he was asked, why do you, why do you talk in parables? And so in Matthew 13, in response to the parable of the sower, which is often called the mother parable, like this is the parable of parables. This is the parable through which you should run every other parable. This is the parable that gives context and perspective and depth to all of the parables. And this is the one where he defends why he's using parable. And what does he do? He quotes Isaiah 6 and the, and the call of Isaiah. And the call of Isaiah puts into light his whole ministry. And he's saying that this is not going to go well that most of your people are not going to listen to you. And these are the words it uses. And these are the words that, quite, that, that Christ quotes. So they do not understand because their heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears 
and understand with their heart and turn, and I would, I would heal them. Now, we're going to come back to this idea of the eyes and the ears and why this is so important, why Christ uses that. But you see what he's saying. He said they won't listen because they're not understanding with their heart. Their heart needs to be turned. It needs to be plowed, as it were, by the Spirit so that the, the Word of God can fall upon fertile ground where it can grow. Uh, but if you remember that parable well, that three of the four types of soil that Christ describes are bad. There's even those that seem to receive the word of God with joy initially, but they don't take it to heart, we could, we could say. And so this is very important to appreciate what our Savior is teaching us uh, about the heart. And in the end of the day, we need to understand that the heart and the mind are friends in Scripture. They're, they're, they're not in, in an adversarial role that when we think of heart, we should think of our thought life and, and not think that the heart is only about feeling or that it's anti-intellectual. Uh, it was Os Guinness who says, the mind and the heart are blood brothers. They're not enemies. And so that's why in scripture many times we see that the word mind and heart are side by side. They're not being contrasted. They're, they're being uh, compared. They're being coordinated. Think of the great commandment itself, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your, your mind. And it's not as if these are distinct areas of man because you know that Mark includes the idea of strength. Well, strength is not some separate inner category. These are things that overlap. It'd be similar to if I said, so which is it? Is, is England, is it in the United Kingdom or is it in Great Britain? Right, it's a trick question, right? It's in both, they're, they're overlapping concepts. And one of them includes three countries, the other one includes a fourth. And I've forgotten, so you'll have to remind me afterwards which one it is. But they're overlapping ideas, all right? And it's the same in Scripture that mind and heart are, are overlapping categories that, that technically would say that the heart comprehends the mind, just as the heart comprehends our desires and our will, but especially here, not to put the heart and the mind in tension. That, that's not biblical. That's not, that's not helpful. And in fact, a lot of Christians probably think similar to this conversation that we get in this important theological book written by Frank Baum. I'm sure many of you have heard of the theologian Frank Baum, but I'm, right? What did he write? He wrote The Wizard of Oz. And so you have this conversation between um, uh, the scarecrow and, and the, uh, the woodman, the tin, the tin man. The tin man says, but after all, brains are not the best things in the world. Have you any, inquired the, the scarecrow. No, my head is quite empty, answered the tin man. But once I had brains and a heart also, so having tried them both, I should much rather have a heart. Now, we need to talk about the brain here for a second, but you see what he's saying. If I had to choose between having thoughts and being a thinking person or having a heart, I'd rather have a heart. And Scripture is saying you don't have to make that choice. All right? These are not in, in opposition to one another. So inevitably I talk about the heart, people say, well, yeah, but what about the brain? And I say the Bible's not interested in the brain. The brain is hardware. The, the, the Bible's interested in software. That's the heart. The fact that you have the ability to think, we don't question that. And, and there's a lot of things about the brain we don't understand. I don't think we understand as much as we think we understand. But we understand that there's a, the synapses and electricity connecting and all this stuff. Yeah, okay, that's fine. I don't care what computer you have. I'm more interested to know if, if it has a virus. 
I want to know what software you're using. And that's what scripture is interested in. It's not your capacity to think. It's your thinking. The Bible's not just interested in the fact that you have random thoughts. No, where's the direction of your thinking? Where is this all going? What's the agenda behind it? What does it mean? And so that's why this is so important to us. So that brings us secondly to the idea then, okay, well, if this is true, uh, that our heart is responsible for our thinking, then, then how does sin affect us here? And so this is where I would, I would use the phrase, we need to, to mind the gap. Anybody recognize that phrase? Where does that phrase come from? Yeah, you guys recognize it. Where does it come? What country? The, the, the tube, right? You're about ready to get on the train, and there's a, well, this is true anywhere you get on a train. You should probably be paying attention. That's always a good idea, right? But there's that gap between the platform and, and the train, you know, and sometimes it's wider than you, than you realize, and you should probably pay, pay attention to it. But in England, what they're saying, or Great Britain, you know, that look at that and mind it. Now, we don't say that that way. And the reason why is because we're a superior country. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, we beat them after all, but I like to remind my English friends of that, that they are members of a loser country. But anyway, <laughs> I don't really mean that. But they, they're using mind as a verb. But this is exactly the, the case. This is very helpful. We'd be thinking upon the fact that there's a gap. And, and what's the gap between? It's between our thinking and, and God's thinking. And between our character and his character, as we'll see in a little bit. But we need to think upon our, our thought life. And the Reformed faith has done a really, really fabulous job in this. And thinking upon how is it that sin has affected the way in which we, we think. Well, let's just pause for a moment, just consider scripture. That about 673 times in scripture we have this word for sin. It's translated sin in your Bible. That's the most common translation. And what it means literally is to miss the mark. It means I'm aiming at a target and my arrow, my bullet, whatever it is, it falls short and I, and I miss the mark. We have this concept brought out in verses like this. In Judges 20, 16, it said the warriors of Gibeah who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And it's this word, they don't miss their, their target. They don't fail to, to hit it. Or in, in Job 5, 24, you shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and, and miss nothing. You'll come short of, of nothing. Uh, we think of the short of catechism. What is sin? Well, the first thing you think of is sin is a transgression against God's law or any lack of conformity. So lack of conformity means I'm, I'm falling short of what I should be conformed to. It's really helpful that that's in the shorter catechism. And so it's the idea of falling short. You get that idea in Romans 3.23. All of us have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. Now the word there is not for sin, but it's the same idea, right? It's this concept that we're missing the mark. And it's, the problem is not that we don't know what the mark is. That's not the problem, is it? We know good and well what God has expected of us but we've fallen short of it. We knew full well what the standard was. We know what God commands uh, and what God expects. We know that he, he commands us to pray, and then we don't pray. Sometimes we forget or we get too busy or whatever, but you see we're falling short of, of, of that standard. This is why it's so helpful to think of sin, not just in terms of sins of commission, but sins of omission. It's not just what I do, but it's what I, what I fail to do. Both of these are equally important in my life. It's just that for sins of omission, we've made up all kinds of excuses. 
I have lots of sophisticated ways to excuse my behavior. I sent an email to my friend recently, and I neglected to do something, and, and I wrote something of why, and I said, and I have several other excuses I could make up if this one's not good enough for you. But we do that all the time. We know what the standard is, and we fail to do it. Or we do nothing. A lot of times that's what we, we please. I didn't do anything. Well, in Scripture, Eli's sons were, were worthless. They were scandalous, but it says Eli did nothing. Uh, Jacob knew that Shechem had raped Dinah, but he did nothing. That's probably what incited his, his son, Simeon and Levi. D- David knew that Amnon raped Tamar. He did nothing, which probably provoked Absalom and started this whole mess. Sin is falling short, and we can never say, I'm doing nothing. Doing nothing is doing something. You're still making a decision, so I'm not just going to get involved, something like that. So that's what sin means, but, but where does sin begin? As we think of the mind, we understand in Scripture that sin often begins in the mind. Most often it begins with having wrong thoughts. That sin is not just words. Sin is not just action. It's about our thought life. In, um, I think, what is my wife's favorite movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, you have Ulysses Everett McGill who says, Pete, it's a fool that looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart. Now, he doesn't say it like that. He says, Pete, it's a fool that looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart. Something like that. That was more Alabaman than it was. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, he's right. And, and to look for that pristine logic or the fact that we always measure up in our thought life, if you think that, it means you have never read the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is devastating. And C.S. Lewis was writing to one of his friends who was not a Christian, and his friend said, well, I don't really care for the Sermon on the Mount. And Lewis said in response, if by care you mean like, anybody who reads that sermon and likes it uh, shouldn't like it because it's like being uh, hit on the ground with a sledgehammer in your forehead, because that's what that sermon is like. And you're not supposed to like it. It's supposed to expose you. And think of what our Savior does in that. He, just to give you a couple examples, he says it's not just being a murderer, but somebody who's angry with their brother. It's not just the adulterer, but the one who struggles with lust. And then he goes on to talk about hypocrisy and avarice and greed and, and worldliness and anxiety and self-righteousness and judging. All of these include the mind. All of these begin with, with our thought life and, and our mind. We have lots of examples of this in Scripture, Romans 1.21. All who refuse God's glory, their thinking is futile, and their foolish hearts are, are, are darkened. In 2 Samuel 6, it talks about Michal, uh, the wife of David, who despised him in her heart. That's where the thoughts began. James 2.4 says, judging our brother and sister begins with evil thoughts. Or Philippians 1.17, it's selfish ambition. It begins with our secret thoughts. Or in Luke 24, 38, the Lord rebukes the doubts that arise in the hearts of his disciples. And so that's where it begins. It begins in our, in our thought life because it involves our hearts. And we could say this too. I don't want to take a lot of time to talk about this. But, but there's also the possibility that we can come to the, to the wrong idea. That this too can be sin. That we can entertain false doctrine, unhealthy doctrine. A lot of Christians think if I'm being utterly sincere, then it's inconceivable that I could sin against God in this way. That's not true. You can wrong at the wrong ideas. Um, I, I do this often. You can ask anybody who's related to me who works with me. 
Um, and the mind of the heart is, is terribly defective. All of you know Jeremiah 17.9. You're not reformed until you know what Jeremiah 17.9 says. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. But it goes on to say, but who can understand it? It's not just that, that, that mind, our mind is deceptive, but we can't track with that. We can't even begin to understand just how deceptive we can be about our own thought life. That's why we need the word of God. But it's, it's the Reformed faith who especially has been keen to understand how it's the state of the heart that affects the mind. It's where our heart is before God. That's what really affects our ability to think rightly or not. This is the way that God made us, that our mind cannot and should not function apart from our desires or from our will. These things are all uh, wrapped up together. C.S. Lewis said, a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. That all of our reasoning, it has an agenda. Richard Sibbs, Puritan, put it this way. He says, because knowledge and affection mutually help one another, it is good to keep up our affections of love and delight by all sweet inducements and divine encouragements for what the heart liketh best, the mind studieth most. The things that you love, those are the things you're going to think upon. That's inevitable. And it shows how that all these aspects of our heart are interconnected. And in fact, God's given to us a really important and helpful word in the, in, in the New Testament. It's the Greek word phreneo, and it's often translated uh, to, to set your mind, or the NIV in Philippians 2 translated as attitude. I like to think of it as mindset. It's, it's what have you set your mind on? Or better yet, what's the direction or the trajectory of your thoughts? What's the disposition of your thinking? Like in Romans 8, 6, it says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. That those who set their mind on the flesh live according to the flesh. And what it's saying, it's not just random thoughts. You really have two distinct directions here. And what are they setting their minds on? What are these people like? Or in Philippians 2, 5, there Paul is talking about how crucial it is for the church to be unified, but that's impossible if we're not going to be humble before one another. And so what does he do? He shows us Christ who humbled himself and he says, this is your mindset. This should be the trajectory of your thoughts towards your brothers and sisters in Christ to consider their needs as more important than your own. Or perhaps one of the most significant examples is found in Matthew 16, 23, and where our Lord has said to his disciples, I'm about to go to Jerusalem, be handed over to evil men, and I'll be crucified and die. And as Peter says, no. No, that's, that doesn't sound right at all. You can't do this. And what does our Savior say in response to Peter? You know the words. He says, get behind me, Satan. I probably got Peter's attention. Get behind me, Satan. And then what does he say? He says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And you see, he's not concerned that Peter has just a few random disconnected thoughts He's concerned about his thinking. He said, Peter, this whole way of thinking, this lines up perfectly with the other voice I heard back in chapter 4 when I was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And he too was trying to distract me from this, this course that I set my life upon, and that is to suffer and to die and to ransom my people. And Peter's saying the same thing. It's a trajectory, you see. It's a disposition. What direction is this, is this ship sailing? What is the tack? It's, no, what is the course? It set itself 
upon. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. And he is your life. You should be seeing your life from, from God's perspective, from the heavenly perspective. And so, in a state of sin, um, in a heart that is lost and astray from God, what does is, what is that mind of the heart look like? Well, listen to what Scripture says. Again, in Genesis 6-5, that the Lord saw the wickedness of men and how great it was, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can you imagine hearing that from your basketball coach? It says, Troxel, I can see on this team that every intention of the thoughts of your heart is only evil continually. It's like, okay, give me some wiggle room in there somewhere. You know, there's no escape from that. It's pretty devastating. Or the heart being deceitful above all things, etc., etc. But let's go to Romans 1. This really shows us, Romans 1, 18 through 32, and what's interesting about that, it's talking about fallen man and how bad his heart is, but it's interesting how many words are there that we associate with, with thinking. And it begins with this whole idea that they know. They know better. They can see. They live in God's world just as you and I do. They have no excuse. Nobody can stand before the throne of God one day and say, you know, God, I saw no evidence of your existence, nothing of your glory or your beauty. No, you can't say that. They clearly perceive, he says in verse 20. They know, verse 19, 21, and 32. But the problem is, in their thinking, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And therefore, they're thinking, verse 21 is futile. Verse 21, it is darkened. Verse 22, it is foolish. Verse 25, they believe a lie. Verse 26, they've committed themselves to an error. Verse 28, they have a debased mind. Verse 29, it uses the word deceit. Verse 31, it is foolish. Those are all words that you and I associate with, with thinking. But this is a person who has decided, I'd rather worship the creation or the creature instead of the creator. It's a fundamental commitment. And therefore, their thinking is all wrong. It's the same in Isaiah 6, as we just saw earlier, but I won't read that again. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's somebody who is blind. And that's the struggle with sin. It's because our reasoning is motivated. All of our thinking has a bias. It has an agenda. Somebody has said, uh, man is always aiming at something. And that's true of our, of our thoughts, that it's, it's on an errand. And so this is why when we, we talk about repentance, which we'll do in the next hour, this is, this is very much to the forefront. It's that many times we realize that what we're confessing to God is simply the way we've been thinking about something. It wasn't what we did. It wasn't what we said. It's what we thought. And that's appropriate. That's appropriate for us to do. But anyway, just to try to show how, how this works and, and how so much of our, of our thoughts are caught up with, uh, our sin is caught up with our thought life. And this is why in Reformed theology we call it the noetic effect of sin, from, coming from the word for mind in Scripture, uh, from which we got that same word I was talking about earlier, phreneo. What's the direction of your mind and your, 
your thinking. This is so helpful, uh, the way that, that God kind of does a, di- a dissection of our hearts, a taxonomy, as it were, and kind of lets us get a window into ourselves that we would understand ourselves better. And you see why this is so important, because understanding our heart helps us to understand our sin. And the better we understand our sin, we can better understand our Savior and better appreciate what it is that he has done and what he continues to do in us by his Spirit. But I can't get into that because that's tonight. We talk about faith. But anyway, uh, let's see what time it is. I'm an adult, which means I'm accountable for time. 10.06. All right, we have some time for, for questions. But it is early, so let's keep them beginning to intermediate. Save the hard ones tonight. All right. Who's got a question? I did not know that I was affected by Greek thinking. <laughs> um, you're talking about the difference between the mind and the heart, you know, like, like that they're really the same. And I think that um, I know for me, there, I, you know, I grew up knowing so much in my mind, and right. it took a lot of humiliating, uh, or humbling, I should say, humbling experiences as an adult to really um, feel like it hit my heart, you know, the gospel and everything like that. Because um, I could be very intellectual about my faith, and I could, you know, some of the people know me from when I was younger, I could debate Calvinism and all that, but I didn't have it in my heart until you know I had to I had to go through some experiences where it became real and like and maybe maybe it's a a concept of the emotions catching up with what your head already knows so I but I know you're talking about that later on in the week like the feeling part so but I know that that's kind of where I think of it as being different is knowing something and then there's another part of it where you take it to actually like like having the passion and and knowing it in your in your being and having it the the uh the emotions that that should come with it it shouldn't just be mm-hmm. a head knowledge thing so that's that's what i was gonna say so what's your question no, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, you're, you're tapping into something that's very real, right? And, and, then, and we often hear about this in the Reformed faith. I was not raised Reformed, and I'll, I'll be candid. The first Calvinist I met did not endear my heart towards Calvinism. But in the end, it wasn't because they were arrogant. It was because I was arrogant, because I would not submit to God's sovereignty. But we're known to be this way, right? Super intellectual and all that. So there's a couple of things I would say to that. And then don't let me forget to get back to the word knowing, okay? Because you brought up something really, really helpful here. But I do think that when we hear those comments, we have to put it in perspective, like who's saying? You know, we say that sometimes. Yeah, well, who's saying? And we have to remember that we do a lot of heavy lifting in the evangelical church because we, we are so thoughtful about our faith. We should never apologize for being concerned about doctrine, about the truth. But a lot of times people are accusing us of being intellectual when we simply care about the truth. But it's also true that a person can easily compartmentalize the faith. Let's keep my doctrine over here and my life over here, and never shall the two meet. And that's the problem. And so a lot of times when somebody says head knowledge, 
versus heart knowledge. What it's talking about is what the Bible describes as there needs to be a connection between what I profess and, and how I live. And you think about it, during the ministry of Christ, public enemy number one was the Pharisees. But you can't, unless you can show me, I've not seen it, where he, he goes after them for a point of doctrine. He does that with the Sadducees. The Pharisees, he goes after them for what? And you know what the word begins with letter H. Hypocrisy. And he even tells people listening to him, listen to what they preach, just don't do what they do. And so this is very interesting. He doesn't correct them theologically. He corrects them for, for this. There's this, this impasse. There's this great chasm between what they say and how they live. And when somebody says head versus heart, this is kind of what they're talking about. And this we agree with wholeheartedly. That what pains us is when we see this distance between what I claim to be true and my failing to live up to it. That's the problem. And that's, that's the distinction we're getting at, that I claim to know this, but do I know it? Now, this is very interesting, so I've not forgotten the word knowing here. And so our Lord is talking to Nicodemus, and he talks to him about being born again. And Nicodemus is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I can't climb back into my mom. I mean, this is ridiculous. And, and Christ's response is interesting. He says, you know, you're a teacher of Israel. I can't believe you don't understand this, what I'm talking about. And he says, I'm not even gotten to the deep stuff. How can you not understand I'm talking about spiritual things? And then he says this too, though. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and, that, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, listen to what he says. We speak of what we know. He doesn't say I. He says we. He says, I and my disciples, we're talking to you about things that we know. And you see what he's saying? There's a difference between what I claim to know where I say, I know this. I know what I'm saying. In fact, I feel it all the way down. And I'm beginning to know what I didn't know about this, what I claim to know. And there's knowing something, there's truly knowing it. Knowing what repentance is. Are you just going to give me the definition from the Shorter Catechism, which is brilliant? Are you going to be able to walk me through what it means to grieve over your sin and you hate it? Those are two different things. And this is why this is so important for us to really just latch on to the things that we claim to know and ask God to teach us to understand them to their depth, how they impact us emotionally. Are they really at work at my will so that I'm, I'm making those turns and those changes? I'm all constantly being reformed. That's what that Reformation slogan means, Semper Reformanda. Some people translate it always reforming. It's, it's a Latin gerundive. It's in the passive, always being changed, always being reformed. I'm the one that's submitting under the authority of God to let him change me. That's what that slogan means and why it's so important. Reformed originally didn't mean something for doctrine. It meant, no, these are the people who are being changed by God's word. That's a, that's a whole other ballgame, I think. And to me, that's one of the most exciting things about swimming in these deep waters of this doctrine, because it leads us to worship. It leads us to a greater understanding of our sin, a greater understanding of God's holiness, and then a greater understanding of that all-surpassing um, grace of God in Christ. All right. So if you dare to ask a question, you might get even a longer answer than that, but go ahead. In a sense, we can beat ourselves up for not what, for what we don't know at the beginning. But you start somewhere. You know, if you start with, you start with knowing the doctrines. 
then Christ sanctifies us by bringing us through situations where it's tested and we go back to him and prove them, right? I mean, like, I'm thinking about like with C.S. Lewis wrote the book about the problem of pain, but then when his wife was dying of cancer, he really learned what he wrote intellectually in the first book. I, I think a lot of us, we, we teach our children doctrine and they haven't experienced all the testing of it and that's God doing it but we can't beat ourselves up for not being where he hasn't put us yet. We just have to keep seeking, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't I, know. I, I mean, it, I don't think it's wrong to, to start somewhere. Start. I, I hope not. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, no, I agree. It's, it's great. What you're bringing out is great. It's all, you know, cause like, it's easy to say, well, I don't, I don't have the deep emotion for this yet. I think you should just keep talking. I, I like no, what no, you're no. doing. <laughs> Well, what you're saying is what is what is said in Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And what David is saying, there are certain experiences that, that so stretch us and push us that I don't really understand something until I walk through it. And usually that means suffering. Usually it means God's going to, it's going to make it kind of ugly for a little while. But the psalmist also in Psalm 131 talks about this, that there are things I don't understand. And the way he puts it is, I don't, my eyes aren't looking too high. I've not lifted up my heart for things that are too wonderful for me. And he's saying, there's a limit to this. And, and I think that's perfectly fine. I think we need to have a real humility towards that and to appreciate the fact that we don't understand everything. And that's okay. Um, it's interesting that if you, um, some of you, have you heard of Herman Bovink, who that is? He's a Dutch theologian. Okay. Maybe I shouldn't go with this story. He's, he's written four volumes. It's called Reformed Dogmatics. A lot of people would say this is like the cream of good Reformed theology. The second volume, the very first sentence begins like this. He says, mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. Now, dogmatics, he means theology. He doesn't mean being dogmatic and being you know, a mean debater. Dogmatics, he means theology. But interesting what he says. Mystery is the beginning of theology. In other words, you start from this position of humility to say there's so much I don't understand. And, and like you said, you've got to start somewhere. And for many of us, we were adopted by the Reformed faith. I was raised in Arminian Wesleyan tradition. And I'm thankful to God that I was. There were th certain emphases they had there that have helped me to appreciate what I enjoy now. And I would never want to go back. I love the Reformed faith. Um, but that's where I began. I mean, for years as a minister, I've, and I have to say, sadly, many times, I'm looking down at the Apostles' Creed. I was not raised with it. I didn't memorize it. And some of the other things that were the short of catechism. I didn't know you had this incredible uh, piece of theology. Warfield said there's nothing better for the organization of theology. I would wish the short of catechism upon any Christian friend. You want to get your theology straight? Start there. I tell it to seminary students. They think I'm joking. So, okay. I'm just bumping my gums, apparently. Up here. So the shorter catechism is so good. And it has a phrase that we'll see in the next session that the larger catechism in the confession doesn't have. And it's great. It's beautiful. Anyway, all right, enough of rambling. Another question. Oh, no. <laughs> Mad Cotta. You might get into this tonight, and if so, just tell me to hang on. But um, mindset, like you said, Freneo, we already have patterns of thought. We Say already, that again? We already have these patterns of thought. I mean, all of us. We have ongoing habits and patterns of thought. We're talking to ourselves all the time more than we talk to anybody else. 
practically speaking, how would you recommend we get at that and change those patterns, change our habits of thinking so that we get more in the mindset we should be in? Well, thanks for the easy one. Uh, I, I like the question very much, Matt. I'm just kidding. I, I think it's a very practical question. All of us need it. Especially, I remember putting myself through college, working with construction guys, and all these adjectives that I didn't use uh, or think of before. And it's like, how do I dislodge this, this vocabulary? And, uh, and for many of us who came to the Christian faith with just heavy baggage that was just inflicted our thought life, and then our brothers and sisters who really, really struggle um, with all kinds of voices in their head, telling them really hurtful things. And so all of us struggle in one sense with this. And I think scripture has a couple helpful things. I mean, the first thing, the most obvious thing is to read scripture and meditate upon it. The scripture says about itself, okay, if you wanna know how to read me best, he says, don't read me fast, don't skim, slow down and meditate upon what I'm saying. Scripture says to meditate upon it. Psalm 1, what does the righteous man do? He meditates upon it day and night. It's got to, it's got to be, you got to be thinking upon it. And that means you got to slow down. And we read way too fast. And if you want to go through the Bible in a year, beautiful, I love you. Scripture is saying, slow down and meditate upon me, I love you. And so that's one thing to do is, is to really take stock of what I'm taking in and slow down, take a paragraph of Philippians 1 and take three weeks to really go over it carefully. And so I think that is one thing. To memorize scripture is, is really helpful too. I do think a passage like Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is very helpful where it says to set your mind on things above. And, and what it's talking about there is we need more often to take a perspective upon our life from God's perspective. We'll, we'll talk about this later, but I do think it means that we have to appreciate that we must always consider our thought life and everything we have, everything we're attached to, the things we cling to in light of eternity. And heaven is a twofold thing that we should think about heaven as a life that is ahead of me so that there's certain things in my life that are going to burn. You know, I shouldn't fixate upon an F-150 Ford Raptor with the 5.0 liter thing. That, not that I, you know, worldly, um, but also understand that my life presently is oriented from there. There's, I need to be holding on to that. I need to, to be um, looking right now for the source and strength of my life from heaven. Heaven is not just the world to come. It's the life above I have right now in Christ. I'm seated with him. I think that helps in terms of perspective. And to as we go through certain seasons, or there's things that God takes away from us, first thing to do is get, get perspective on it. I think the other thing is, is, is to be challenged by our spouse, a good friend, and to maybe you've been thinking about something in, uh, recently and say, I just want to spin my thoughts out. I know I can do that with you, and I know that you'll be honest with me and tell me if I'm being stupid, or if I'm being worldly, or fleshly. And I think, so it's a spin out of rationale. It's, it's very helpful. And that's what I think that Frenetto was talking about, this set your mind on. Well, what have you set your mind on? It's probably something you really, really want. Okay, well, what do you want? Well, that's tomorrow. That's a great question. There was another question up here. or It's probably the last one. Just basically, I think what you're saying is a summation is that, and I think I'm saying that, quote, 
right from Eileen Scipioni, maybe, um, is that I do what I do because I think I think. Yeah. And then, but then I think about, I've heard somebody say, and I can't remember, in regard to sin, well, the heart wants what it wants, so I can't stop what I'm doing. Yeah, I, no, I think that's true. I think that's true. Uh, that, our, that our minds are leading us many times. Now, it's not exclusively that way, right? Um, John Owen believed that, that most of our temptations come to us through our desires, not our thought life. But, but I think that, as we'll see next session, that um, you can never, ever think of sin apart from the mind. And that in some way, I'm thinking upon this, or I've been dwelling upon it, and, and that's something, too, is like, where is my mind often going? So one of the things I found that was helpful for me uh, for sleeping was I have a book on the nightstand or on the Kindle, you know, because I found I, sleep, I, I fell asleep better that way. But that also means, but, but what kind of book am I going to be reading as I fall asleep? And I think there's something to be said for just reviewing a few Proverbs in the evening. We, need, we should be in the Proverbs more often, I think, and especially the Psalms. And the great thing about the, the Psalms in particular is not just reorienting my thinking, but my affections, my desires. They're leading me towards worship. But the Psalms are walking you through every marshland, every swamp you've had in your life. And it's talking out loud about it and presenting it to God. And that's what prayer is, presenting our desires to God. But desires is tomorrow. I'm getting ahead of myself. But it's just all your desires. Are they good desires or bad desires? Doesn't matter. God wants to hear both. This is what I'm thinking. Where are you? And God's saying, I want to hear that. Just get that out. Let's, let's think upon that. That's what's so great about the Psalter. And so to have our minds filled with the, with the Psalms, I've just found increasingly is, is so helpful as a, as a Christian. And, and chiding myself, why didn't I do this when I was younger? These are really, really good questions. So how would you answer a critique or a criticism that what you're saying is kind of a sort of like the mindfulness movement with a Christian label, like Christian mindfulness, just memorize scripture, um, set your mind on things above, you know, sort of mantra style to enforce change in your life? I'm not hearing a lot about the Holy Spirit's role, mm -hmm. but I think that if I presented just what you said to an unbeliever who's thinking and is also concerned about changing their own character for the better, mm -hmm. that they might say, what's the difference? Why do I need to add you know, scripture in particular or be a Christian to do that. I can do it from any number of mindfulness movement kind of self-help books. Yeah, so, so that's not all I would say to an unbeliever for sure, right? And our, and our session is more about sin and how the heart functions in terms of the mind. I think there's a couple of things I would say that scripture is not just giving us pet answers. It, gives, it opens up categories. So I'm thinking what Paul says in Philippians 4, where he tells us to, to, to be thinking upon things that are true um, and honorable and just and lovely and pure and commendable, if there's anything excellent, anything admirable. So those are categories. 
And it's saying, these, these, this is the direction in which my mind ought to be going as a Christian. So I'm looking at the best of the best. I'm open up to, to, to categories of beautiful according to what God calls beautiful, which means that that affects the way in which I, I see and praise, let's say, my wife. Because the world would constantly tell my wife, you need to be pretty. God is saying, you need to be beautiful. But what does beautiful mean according to God? And so, see, that's a whole orientation. It's not just a mantra like, I just keep tell Carol to tell herself, I'm beautiful, I'm beautiful, I'm beautiful. No, it's, it's to put it into light of, of what, what are the categories of beauty. That, and God says it's that, it's that heart. That's what's beautiful to him, that gentle spirit. And then Paul opens up these, all these vistas of that, if there's anything admirable or excellent, we're going in the right direction here in our thinking, as opposed to that which is deplorable and filthy, uh, that which is dishonorable, uh, like most movies that are made today, you know. Um, and I think that's one way I would answer it. But I get back to Romans 1. Romans 1 is about the agenda. And that because your heart is wrongly oriented, it's, it's inevitably going to lead you in, into error, futility, dark and debased understanding. And so that's not just like data. That's, that's trajectory. But then on top of that, the Bible does give us content. And it gives us content in terms of what is the ultimate truth to think upon? Well, it's God. And then God opens his heart to us in Scripture and says, this is who I am. And opens up these categories. Let's just use the shorter catechism, that he's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And his being, wisdom, power, oh, this is terrible. Being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And then he, he gives us many verses and many subsets of those. What does it mean that he's loving? What does it mean that he's holy? And this is, this is content that, that fills our hearts. So this, those are not just mantras. They're not just repeating verses over again. Those verses that we repeat are, are, are meant to help us to meditate upon the truth of what they, they teach us. And so when I ask my, tell myself to trust the Lord with all my heart and to lean not on my own understanding, but to acknowledge him in all my ways, that he'll direct my path, that acknowledging him, that's what I was talking about, that heavenly-mindedness, where heaven's not just something future only, it's right now. Acknowledge him right now, that he's directing my paths right now. That's at Romans 8, 28. So that's, to me, that's it's a much fuller understanding of what we're talking about. That our non-Christian friends, and we love them, um, and we have such compassion upon them because they can't see. I mean, that, to us, is just the tragedy of it. And we want them to see, but it's jaded. That's what Scripture's telling us. I'm, I'm looking through a certain lens and everything is fuzzy. Everything is unclear to me. I'm not seeing it the way I ought to see it. That they can perceive some things. And we rejoice in God's kindness to them. That they, they're given that general revelation. But, but what, as Calvin says, what they need are a pair of these. The word of God to make things clear. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's for tonight. It's a good question. It's so sad that we're out of time for no more questions. Okay, I was being sarcastic, and you're not supposed to be sarcastic. Very good. Well, let's close in prayer, shall we? Our gracious God and Father, again, you have helped us, and there is so much more to learn and for us to understand, but we understand this, that you have given to us not just the ability to think, but you have given to us uh, new minds because we are now new creatures in Christ, and now we see. We see our sin, and we see our Savior. But we thank you, Father, for this great privilege to walk in this beautiful creation, especially on a day like today, and to look and to know that 
We are not to worship creation, but to worship the creator, the one who made this. And the one who has remade us, we thank you for this. We rejoice in it, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.